thank you for joining us this evening. Welcome to our fourth annual Research and Innovation Month activity this evening. We're so glad that you're here in person. I'm Holly Jones, Director of Research Administration at Northeast Georgia Health System. And it's just my pleasure to welcome you here in person as well as everyone that we do have online. Wanted to share just a few words about Research and Innovation Month and a little bit about the history of the event as we've grown over the last four years. The um, uh, first thank you to our planning committee members and everyone who helped make this event possible today. Um, and please use your phone also to scan our uh, QR code that allows you to see the amazing content that we have curated for uh, visibility of those investigators throughout the specialties, including oncology, in our throughout our health system who have been doing research quality in innovation and evidence-based practice throughout the year. So very important to visit this site and really see what everyone's working on throughout the health system. We're excited to share more about that and to also have the events that are planned for Research and Innovation Month throughout the month of October. And tonight, it's especially important because it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Dr. Nash will be coming up to formally introduce our speaker for this evening. And um, just a little bit of background on Research and Innovation Month for the health system is we started the event back in 2020 during the height of the pandemic, and this event started as a one-day celebration of that research and uh, quality improvement work that was going on. At that time, it was one day, and it was virtual only, as you might imagine. And then over the years, it's grown from one day to one week, and now a full month of activities. So we're just thrilled to expand the event to include more activities throughout the month of October. But, you know, our invited speakers, as Dr. Kalinske's joining us tonight, are world-renowned leaders in the area of research, and we're excited to hear from him tonight about breast cancer research um, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So I did want to um, read a, a couple of disclosure statements about our CME and CE activities for this evening. Um, no individuals are in a position to control content for this activity or have any financial relevant relationships to declare. Dr. Kalinske will announce his disclosures during his presentation. There's no commercial support being received for this event. For successful completion of the learning activity, learners must attend the complete activity for CE and CME credit, no partial credit available, and the survey will be at the end of the PowerPoint presentation. It will be recorded and available within our CME library for viewing later as well. But I'd like to welcome now Dr. Charles Nash, our Medical Director of Oncology and Research Administration at Northeast Georgia Health System, to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. So good to be with you this afternoon, and welcome to all those who are here in person and online. Um, um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Kevin Kalinske, who uh, first off is a, is a really nice guy. Get to know him while he's here. Um, Kevin was, is professor in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology uh, at the Winship Cancer Center uh, at Emory University. Serves as director of the Glenn Family Breast Center at Winship, where he is tasked with fulfilling the vision to improve breast cancer outcomes by aligning research and education with cancer treatment and prevention. He received his medical degree from the Medical University of South Carolina and a master in biostatistics, patient-oriented research track from Columbia University, um, Mailman School of Public Health. His training included a residency in medical oncology fellowship at the Tufts New England Medical Center, a breast cancer research fellowship in Mass General, 
and Breast Cancer Advanced Oncology Fellowship in Memorial Sloan Kettering. Dr. Kalinsky's research involves the development of early phase clinical trials to assess the novel therapeutics of breast cancer based on tumor genomics. He's received the NCI Cancer Clinical Investigator Team Leadership Award, the Physician of Impact Award by the Komen uh, uh, Greater New York City uh, Organization, the UIG Clinical Scholar Teaching Award, and the SWOG Career Engagement Award. Uh, he is a, I've heard him speak so many times, and he is a wealth of information. And um, uh, Kevin, come up here and uh, present to us this afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. All right. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, oh, even hearing it, I think, oh, I'm so old how that happened. Um, <clears throat> but it really is a pleasure to come speak with you. Uh, you know, I uh, am able to attend some of the tumor boards that you have, which are really excellent. Uh, with some challenging cases and great discussion. I appreciate you guys including me uh, on some of those. All right, so I want to talk about where I feel like the field is going in breast cancer. And it's topical, one, because this being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but then we also think about where some of the advances are in caring for our patients with breast cancer and where the innovation is. To me, that's really highlighted when we think about the development of antibody drug conjugates. So I know this is a um, uh, audience uh, with mixed expertise. So some of it I'm going to get real narrow. I'm going to try to remain also broad intermittently. And I also am not opposed to you stopping me as I'm going along and asking me questions, especially if I say something that uh, suggests that I'm delirious. So really feel free to... to, to um, to ask me questions. These are my disclosures. Uh, I will say that none of these um, affect the data that I'm going to be presenting to you. All right, so as I mentioned, I'm going to be really talking about antibody drug conjugates. And so when I explain what these drugs are to patients, I explain it in that it's similar to how my GPS explained to me how to get here. This is how we think about these drugs, where there's an antibody that is linked to a target, there's a you know, um, uh, you know, program to go to a specific target, and then is linked to a chemotherapy, right? So instead of giving intravenous chemotherapy, this is an antibody that's directly delivering the chemo to those cancer cells. And then others describe this as a warhead um, uh, or a bomb. And there are a number of steps that are important in the context of antibody drug conjugates where the um, drug is internalized, traffic, and then we see that the cancer cell uh, can be impacted. And then there's something that's often described that we utilize this term called the bystander effect, which means that it has an impact on the surrounding cells as well, where they're there are immune cells that are brought into the area, activated, recruited, uh, and then there's this effect that happens even outside of the cancer cell that that particular antibody drug conjugate is targeting. Antibody drug conjugates are not a completely new idea in cancer. The first FDA-approved antibody drug conjugate was in hemalignancy. Uh, Gemtuzumab, and you know, the other thing with these drugs is they have to have really long names, which are entirely impossible to 
have patients and uh, providers say. But in breast cancer, we've been utilizing a antibody drug conjugate TDM1 for patients with HER2 positive breast cancer, and that was a practice-changing drug in metastatic disease where we saw an overall survival benefit with the approval of TDM1. And we also utilize this for patients who get chemo and HER2-targeted drugs before they go to surgery and then have residual disease, and this helps prevent recurrences in those patients, and that's standard of care. But there are many more uh, antibody drug conjugates that are in development, and not just in breast cancer. We have antibody drug conjugates that are approved in urothelial cancer. There are others uh, that are approved in other indications. But in breast cancer, this is definitely something that is actively being evaluated. So this is a schema that is just giving a sense of where we are for metastatic disease that's estrogen-driven. A lot of this talk is going to focus on metastatic cancer because oftentimes these drugs are first developed in the metastatic setting and then brought over to patients with early-stage cancer. And one of the things, if there's one teaching point, especially for those in the room who don't treat a lot of breast cancer, that I will start by saying is that for metastatic breast cancer that's estrogen-driven, patients can live for years. And our goal is that patients start with drugs that target the estrogen receptor, hopefully years before we even need to think about something like an antibody drug conjugate or chemotherapy. And so you can see this timeline here. We have different hormone therapies that have been approved. We have different targeted therapies. And then most recently, including oh, at the bottom here, you can see the approval of uh, some drugs, and I'm going to spend a good amount of time talking about these antibody drug conjugates. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is a drug that's called trastuzumab deruxtecan. So this is uh, for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer, which is seen in about a quarter of breast cancers. A game changer that we had with the approval, um, you know, in the mid-2000s was with the approval of Herceptin or trastuzumab. And this is approved for patients with metastatic as well as early-stage breast cancer. So we knew that this was a very viable target, and this really improved the outcome for our patients. And so this drug was developed, trastuzumab deruxtecan, which is essentially Herceptin that is linked to a chemotherapy. And the same holds true where uh, we, this drug is internalized and then can have a bystander effect. <clears throat> so what I'm showing here is the initial data for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer, which, again, is about a quarter of breast cancer. This was a patient population which had received a number of prior lines of, of, of uh, prior therapies. And this is a uh, waterfall plot. And what you're looking at, these are the very few patients who didn't respond to the drug. And you can see these are all the patients that responded, including some patients who had what we call complete responses, right? They didn't have any cancer left on their scans. These are patients with metastatic disease that despite seeing prior lines of therapy, we're seeing this remarkable response in patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. And the FDA approved the drug even just based upon uh, these initial uh, data. So this then led to comparing that drug, trastuzumab deruxtecan, versus the first drug that I mentioned, the TDM1, 
which had been our standard of care uh, really for second line metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. And you know, this is a waterfall plot that we don't see every day in when we're treating patients with cancer. And this is also an incredibly impressive curve where you're looking at here the time that it takes for patients to have tumors that progress. This is the drug that I'm talking about, trastuzumab drugs TCAN, and this is TDM1. And you can see just this huge difference in terms of how long it takes for cancer to progress. And TDM1 is still part of our cancer uh, armamentarium for HER2-positive breast cancer, but it has been displaced really with TDM1, uh, TDXD being given sooner. So one of the interesting things with this drug is in the original studies, they looked at breast cancer and gastric cancer and other tumors. And I will also just say that it is highly likely that this drug is going to get an approval across multiple subtypes, uh, given some of the data that we've seen at other conferences, including at ASCO. But it included uh, this population who had what we call HER2 low breast cancer. So they didn't quite reach the threshold of what we would define as having a HER2 positive breast tumor. These were patients who had HER2 low breast cancers. And even in this small study, this was only 50 patients, you can see this waterfall plot looks very similar to the one that I showed you for patients with HER2 positive breast cancer. And so this has really been a game change for us because I just want to reiterate the point that this is a drug that targets HER2. And the way that we had defined HER2 was based upon these guidelines where if your tumor expressed the protein at a certain level, that it was 3 plus or it was amplified by what uh, in situ hybridization. Like those were the patients who were benefiting from herceptin or trastuzumab based treatment. But now we're seeing that even patients who don't have that threshold of HER2 positivity or quote unquote HER2 low, meaning one plus or two plus uh, and in situ hybridization negative, these are patients that are also benefiting. So it asks the question, how well are we really looking at HER2? Like is the assay precise? But it's also going back to that comment I made about the bystander effect in that this could be uh, impacting, uh, have such a, you know, robust response that it could be impacting even those cells that don't have high expression of HER2. So this is just demonstrating some of the images. Like this is a, looking at an immunostain of, you can see all these dark spots is the expression of HER2. This is HER2 low. Um, HER2 low is seen in about two-thirds of patients who have estrogen-driven breast cancer and about a third of patients who have estrogen-negative breast cancer. So it's a high prevalence. Uh, this is just demonstrating what I was just mentioning, that uh, you can see that um, the rate of expression of potentially being HER2 low goes up as that estrogen receptor expression increases. So this was a pivotal trial that was reported at ASCO in 2022. And, um, you know, there are very few circumstances where we present or data are being presented at a meeting and there gets a standing ovation. You know, we oncologists, it takes a little bit more to get us impressed. 
Uh, and this was the second time at which there was a standing ovation. The first time was when we saw the initial data regarding trastuzumab, the Herceptin that was approved in the mid-2000s. So in this study, Destiny Breast 04, they looked at that HER2 low population and they compared getting TDXD, the drug that we were talking about, versus physician choice chemotherapy. The majority of these patients had estrogen-driven breast cancers, just given the fact that the prevalence of uh, HER2 low is higher if you have an estrogen-driven breast cancer. And uh, I won't go through all of this except to say that this was a pretreated population. The median number of prior lines of endocrine therapy that they had were two, one chemo. The majority of these patients had CDK4-6 inhibitors, which are oral drugs that have also been practice-changing for ER-positive breast cancer. And what you see here is just the statistically significant difference in terms of progression-free survival. These are the patients who get TDXD. These, this, this is chemotherapy. This is in all patients, you know, hazard ratio 0.51. This led to the approval of the drug, not just in HER2-positive breast cancer, but HER2-low as well. And also, importantly, patients live longer. So these are the patients in the overall population where you can see this delta of difference being, you know, patients are living longer six to seven months. The other thing that's just really worth reiterating is that in both estrogen-driven breast cancer and estrogen-negative breast cancer, that you see some real shrinkage of the cancer. There's a response rate of about 50%. And this can be really clinically important because you may have a patient who's symptomatic and is having pain or has visceral disease like liver meds or a breast lesion that's large and bleeding. And so this response rate that you can see can be really important because you or seeing shrinkage of the cancer, which also can associate with improvement of uh, symptoms that patients may be experiencing. So this is also just demonstrating that for patients with estrogen negative, uh, hormone receptor negative breast cancer, that we're still seeing uh, benefit, uh, even if it's uh, estrogen receptor low population. So there's benefit across the cohort. So what are some of the side effects that we can see from this drug? So one, this is an intravenous infusion that's given once every three weeks. I'll say not all patients lose their hair. The main side effect that we can see can be nausea and vomiting. And at our institution, I would say that this has been the biggest issue that we've seen. We are pretty aggressive in terms of the intravenous antiemetics that we're giving to patients. Uh, there's some patients we worry where we have to have them come in the following week to get additional IV fluids and, uh, and antiemetics. I don't know if that's been your experience here as well. Uh, I would say that's the main issue. The other issue could be fatigue. Uh, you can see some neutropenia. But then the other thing that is of particular interest, and I feel like this has really been hit home amongst us uh, who are medical oncologists, is interstitial pneumonitis. And in the original studies where they looked at trastuzumab directs TKIN that were presented at ASCO several years ago, there were several patients who died due to pneumonitis. And so this is an important side effect 
you know, given what we know now and in, in terms of our awareness of this side effect, the rate of having interstitial pneumonitis is less than 10%. But it's important that uh, we're doing images uh, on these patients, including CT scans regularly. And if you have a patient who says, listen, I have this new cough or shortness of breath, it's critical that you do a CAT scan to look at this area because if it's grade two or higher, then you need to stop the drug and not reintroduce it. So the other question that's come up is, you know, so I said that this is for patients with HER2 low breast cancer. And one of the interesting findings that was also presented at ASCO a couple months ago, there were some data that came out from the group at Mass General that showed that, because um, the drug's not approved for patients who have HER2 zero breast cancer, you know, HER2 negative, yeah, there are data that the more times you biopsy, they, they had some patients where they even biopsy you know, up to five times or so, that sometimes it requires serial biopsies in order to detect HER2 low status. And there remains this question of whether we should be giving this drug regardless of HER2 status, meaning there could be benefit even for patients who have HER2 zero or negative breast cancer. And there was a study that has now been published called the DAISY trial, which included this cohort of patients who were HER2 negative. And you can see, though it was a small population, you're still seeing pretty good response in these patients. And so one of the questions that I commonly get is, okay, you have a patient who's triple ne who has triple negative breast cancer. Would you ever think about, if you're running out of options, trying to get trastuzumab directstecan in a patient who's HER2 zero, I absolutely have tried to do that and say, okay, uh, you know, we have data from the DAISY trial. I found that it's somewhat insurance dependent in terms of whether it's covered. Uh, but this may also be a patient for whom doing serial biopsies would make sense that you can at least try to get it covered because uh, they the label is for her too low. But we should be seeing data soon from the Destiny Breast 06 trial. So this is a study that included patients who had quote-unquote ultra-low, meaning these are patients with hormone receptor-positive disease. Patients were randomized to TDXD versus chemotherapy. And this included this population of patients who were ultra-low, meaning like even like a little speck of HER2 positivity. And so this is going to be an important study because it may even further have implications in terms of broadening the criteria of patients in the, in the group of patients who could receive trastuzumab TREX-TCAN. So I'm going to move along from talking about that antibody drug conjugate to talking about sasituzumab govotecan. So this is a drug that targets a different protein that's called TROPE2. TROPE2 is a marker that's on epithelial cells and highly expressed in all the subtypes of breast cancer. And it is linked to a different, pay, uh, different payload called SN38, which is, um, and when I say payload, I mean the chemotherapy that's linked to the antibody. Though both of these drugs, trastuzumab directecan and sasituzumab, sorry, uh, trastuzumab directecan and sasituzumab govotecan are the same class of payload. It's just a different uh, specific payload, but the same class. They're both topoisomerase inhibitors. So this drug was also approved for patients with triple negative breast cancer based upon the phase one, two study, which showed this impressive response rate. Again, this waterfall plot curve. And I will tell you in my own career, one of the highlights 
thus far has been participating in that phase one, two trial. This was when I was at Bit Columbia before moving down to Atlanta about three years ago, where I had patients who came in with triple negative breast cancer. For those of you who treat breast cancer, you know, the patients with triple negative disease, they can just have tumors that progress after two months to just go from one to the other, you know, in terms of sequencing of treatments. It was so gratifying to see responses where patients might not have responded to their prior treatments, but really responded to sasituzumab covitekin. In fact, one of the first patients I put on this study was a patient whose goal was to run a marathon in each continent. Uh, and while she was on sasituzumab govitekin, she was able to achieve that. She flew to Japan and uh, ran a marathon in Asia. Um, so uh, this drug uh, was evaluated again for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. It was approved in triple negative breast cancer, and then now it's also approved in estrogen-driven breast cancer. I will say that this is was evaluated in a more heavily pretreated population than the data I showed with trastuzumab directs TCAN, and that all of these patients must have had at least two, but no more than four lines of chemotherapy for metastatic disease. In same sort of design, SASE, which is given two weeks on, one week off, versus physician choice chemotherapy. And what we saw here, this is looking at the Kaplan-Meier curve for improvement in progression-free survival. And you can see that there was this improvement in, in progression-free survival, you know, maybe not quite as impressive as what we see in HER2-positive disease, that one where I showed TDM1 versus trastuzumab directs TCAN. But still, this is improving how long it's taking cancer to progress for some patients. But most importantly, we're seeing that patients live longer. And uh, we're seeing these data have been updated that the overall survival difference can be a couple of months. And that's what's being shown here, sorry, uh, where we see about a three-month improvement in survival. One of the questions that came up is whether you have to have trope 2 expression in order to see who's benefiting from getting sasituzumab govitekin. Mole of the story, as opposed to when we give trastuzumab directs TCAN, when we look at HER2 status, for sasituzumab, we don't look at trope 2 expression. One, because most tumors express trope 2, and also it didn't seem to be predictive of who was benefiting or not. And that's what these data are showing, too. Uh, also, one of the questions had been, <clears throat> what about HER2 status? If you're HER2 low or HER2 negative, did that have implications in terms of who benefits from sasituzumab? It doesn't matter. These patients were benefit regardless of their HER2 status. So what are the side effects that we can see with sasituzumab govotekin? All patients lose their hair. Every patient loses their hair with sasituzumab. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has had any sort of different experience, but everybody loses their hair. The main side effect that we experience, again, can be uh, nausea vomiting. We also highly escalate the, the type of antiemetics that we give uh, when we're um, even prophylactically for these patients. The other main side effect that we can see can be neutropenia. I don't know what your experience has been like, but it feels like you know, in the clinical trials, about 50% of patients required growth factors. I feel like I'm giving so many growth factors to these patients, uh, meaning Nulaster or Nupagen to just help sustain their white count. And then the other side effect can be diarrhea and gastrointestinal issues. 
So there are other trope 2 antibody-drug conjugates that are coming down the pike. In fact, next week at ESMO, the European Congress, we're going to see the results of the phase 3 trial of DATO-DXD. And so this is a intravenous drug that will be coming to patients, I suspect, within the next year or so. So as opposed to sasituzumab govotecan, which is given two weeks on and one week off, DATO-DXD is given once every three weeks. I don't know. Did you guys have any studies with DATO? No. So uh, the benefit of this drug is that it's given less frequently. We'd seen data from this phase one study that included patients with triple negative breast cancer, also hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Uh, some of these data now have been published in JCO this year. And what they saw was, again, a response rate of about a third. These data really mirrored what we saw with sasituzum of govotecan. And one of the interesting things from the study is that there were a small quarter of patients, because again, it's tar they're both targeting trope 2, right? They still have the same target. There were a subgroup of patients who previously had received SASI who still responded to this medicine, and then others not. And it's not clear what sort of predictors there are to determine who will or won't benefit, but it's going to be a really important question if this drug gets approved, because it's something that we're already facing for our patients who are eligible for multiple antibody drug conjugates, is how should we best sequence these drugs, given that the payloads can be similar, we may have drugs that have similar targets, like how should we be thinking about this? And so uh, there are a number of questions that remain with antibody drug conjugates, and this will only increase the kinds of questions that will be out there. So the one thing I want to highlight about DATO-DXD, especially if and when this drug gets approved, is that the toxicity profile is different. The main toxicity with this drug is stomatitis, and it can be significant. You can see in the early phase trials that the rate of grade three stomatitis was about 40%. So in the clinical trials, they highly recommended utilizing the oral mouth rinse prophylactically. And that seems to have made things better, but we'll see it as mode the rate of stomatitis. But that's really the main thing that we see. And this drug is now being evaluated in the residual disease setting, meaning triple negative breast cancer. You get your neoadjuvant chemotherapy and immunotherapy. You have residual disease. I think you guys, you have that, this study open, uh, Tropion Breast 03? No. So uh, this is just really important because I have a patient who went on to that study and had significant ul uh, ulceration in the mouth. When this drug gets approved, utilize prophylactic uh, oral mouth uh, rinse. Uh, they do some, see some low rates of pneumonitis, uh, but this, again, we'll see the data next week for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. We know it's a positive study. That press release was, uh, is out there. But um, again, uh, should be coming approved in the next year or so, I would guess. So I just want to mention other antibody drug conjugates, uh, mention where I think these drugs are going, then I'll open this up to any questions that uh, you may have. So this is a study that we have open at Emory. We're actively recruiting to this study. So this is a Mersana 
uh, antibody conjugate, which is targeting B7H4, which is important uh, for um, as a uh, immune marker. This is enrolling patients with triple negative breast cancer and hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. We're now at the um, recommended phase two dose, and the main toxicity that we can see with this drug could be proteinuria. There are other antibody drug conjugates, uh, including lidirituzumab vedotin, which is a drug that targets this protein that's called LIV1. It is linked to a microtubule inhibitor. This drug had been evaluated now several years. It's not so clear what the ultimate development of this drug is going to be. It's mostly because this drug caused a lot in the way of neuropathy, tingling and numbness in the hands and the feet. And so we'll see whether this drug moves forward. And then the other drug, just to keep your, uh, in terms of where things are going, will be the HER3 DDXD. It's also called Petrutimab Duraxtecan. And so this is a drug that is being evaluated in breast cancer, but really moving more quickly, I would say, in non-small cell lung cancer. And we've seen data from breast cancer across various subtypes of breast cancer. Then I just want to show that uh, across the various subtypes, whether it's HER2 positive, triple negative, or hormone receptor positive HER2 negative, we're seeing responses across all the subtypes also recognizing the HER2 population was pretty low. They also showed at ASCO last year that the benefit seems to be regardless of HER3. So they're developing this drug independent of a biomarker. So I mentioned this dilemma that we may have about how do we sequence antibody drug conjugates. You know, right now we're still trying to figure out what are the resistance mechanisms to these drugs. And these are data that were published from the group at MGH, which showed that in a small population of patients, that patients can develop trope 2 mutations. They can also develop tope 1 mutations. And so one of the questions that's going to be, especially if we have two trope 2 directed antibody drug conjugates on the market, is will sequencing to a different trope 2 ADC overcome the resistance mechanisms from whatever trope 2 ADC they just received? And so there are studies that are looking at the sequencing of ADCs. I'll tell you at Emory, we're hopefully this year going to be opening an investigator-initiated trial that's in collaboration with MGH in Miami, where patients are going to be with hormone receptor positive for too low breast cancer. They start out with DADODXD and then go on to get sesotuzumab, govotecan, and we collect biopsies and blood and trying to understand the resistance mechanisms. So that's a study that should be opening hopefully in the next year. And this is another example of a different trial that's uh, looking at sequencing of TDXD and DATODXD with the expectation that DATODXD will get approved. So I just threw a lot of information your way, and I thought I would just really focus on if I had a patient with metastatic hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, how do I treat this patient? So as I mentioned, we give endocrine therapy-based treatments, often in combination with the targeted treatment for as long as we can. If patients develop PIK3CA mutations, oftentimes we're giving PI3K-targeted drugs. If you develop an ESR1 mutation and you were on your prior endocrine therapy and CDK4-6 inhibitor for at least a year, those are patients who would be, you know, worth giving l which is a new oral 
drug uh, surge that was approved. And then once you need to do chemotherapy, this is where the dichotomization of HER2 low or HER2 zero is important, where if a patient's HER2 low, you know, you may need to give a dose of key, uh, a, a regimen of chemotherapy given that trastuzumab deruxtecan is approved after first-line therapy. So that's commonly what I give next, and then ultimately think about giving something like sasituzumab govotecan. But if a patient's HER2 zero, oftentimes I give sasituzumab govotecan um, as soon as I can. So I know that was like a marathon through where things are with antibody drug conjugates. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have just about ADCs or hormone receptor positive disease. I'm also happy to talk about where these drugs are going, including in the operable setting. So I look forward to any questions that you may have. Thank you. I was just there, <laughs> Dr. Simpat. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you so much for the talk. Uh, sometimes I'm seeing patients who um, are ERP or positive but are not behaving that way and clearly establish themselves as such early on. The struggle I have is, um, of course, if it's ERP of 10% or less, I, I tend to think if it's HER2-0 that this is a triple negative patient behaving aggressively. But I have some challenging patients between 15 and 30%. Um, and do you just kind of start them on the first lines that you presented in your diagram, but if they're not behaving appropriately, you switch them, or what do you do? Yeah. So um, one of the dilemmas that we have is that we used to define estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positivity as being greater than or equal to 10%. And then now, ASCO cap guidelines changed, and now it's greater than 1%. But I think you raise a very fair point in that those patients who are 1 to 9, I think are functionally triple negative. And those are patients that I always have reluctance of utilizing endocrine therapy-based regimens. Uh, and that was also just experience in the past of utilizing that sort of hormonal therapy and just watching patients just fly through those drugs. And so those patients, I do get concerned. I also have concerns about patients uh, with lower expression, you know, meaning 30%, something like this. I will tell you, I have anecdotes, including patients who were treated elsewhere and then had transferred their, moved to Atlanta and transferred their care to me, where they did have some durability of response on hormonal therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. And so if you have a patient who has bone-only disease or a limited volume of disease, those are patients that I think it's appropriate to, if it's ER 30% and HER2 negative, I think it's appropriate to try hormonal therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. If it's a patient who, you know, you're concerned about visceral crisis, those may be patients that I'm a little less enthusiastic about doing that. The only other thing that I mentioned, which is a little bit off topic, is that, you know, when I was in training 100,000 years ago, uh, for any patient that we were worried about for hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, you know, anybody who was like in pain or visceral crisis, we would start out by giving chemo frontline, like we'd often give taxol frontline just to get their volume of disease uh, under better control. But we saw at ASCO 
no, San Antonio last year, that in patients with visceral crisis in this Asian study, chemo, doublet chemo, compared to giving hormonal therapy and ribocyclib, that the combination of endocrine therapy and CDK4-6 inhibitor, they did better. And so I think, you know, in a patient who's a strong expressor of the estrogen receptor frontline, like that really is my standard of care, including patients who are in, you know, in visceral crisis. I am not a medical oncologist, so I would like to hear a little bit more about how one fulvestrant works. I know a lot about tamoxifen, I don't know a lot about AIs because that's what everybody gets. <clears throat> but talk a little about fulvestrant and how it works and mm -hmm. also about the ESR1 mutants. Sure. So the question just is about the selective estrogen receptor downregulators. So for some time, in terms of that class of drug, all we had was fulvestrant, and fulvestrant is an intramuscular injection that you get in each buttock every other week for three times and then once a month. And so the way that those drugs work is they, you know, when you give an aromatase inhibitor, it's depleting the body of estrogen or tamoxifen, it's blocking the receptor. The way that these drugs work is they help internalize the receptor so that then uh, estrogen can't come in and feed a cancer cell. Um, and what we have now is in the metastatic setting, the approval of elicestrin, which is an oral drug, um, is approved only as a single agent, right? It's not approved in the combination with any other targeted therapies. We don't yet know the safety and efficacy of combining it with the various targeted drugs like CDK4-6 inhibitors or PI3K inhibitors. So it's a drug that's given once a day, generally well-tolerated, maybe some gastrointestinal issues or fatigue, but not the arthralgias that we can see with aromatase inhibitors. Um, and it's approved for patients with ESR1 mutations, so only in the metastatic setting. So ESR1 mutations are adaptive uh, resistance mechanisms where patients who are on most commonly described with aromatase inhibitors, the reason that we're seeing progression is because this mutation develops that makes the estrogen uh, function regardless of the expression of estrogen that may be circulating. And so that's the first oral CERD. Uh, there are a bunch of other oral CERDs that are in development that are in phase three trials. The other thing that I'll mention is that the CERDs are moving into the adjuvant setting in clinical trials. And so there's some studies that are looking at at the time that we're starting hormonal therapy. There are some that are looking at patients who might have been on an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen for a couple of years and then doing switching strategies at two to three years. And so I suspect there'll be other SIRDs that come down the pike. The SIRDs have different toxicity profiles. Some of them cause, for instance, bradycardia. Some of them cause photopsia which is essentially you know, when you walk into an auditorium or you walk out of here and your eyes readjust with light, like that's what patients describe. And so not all the drugs are the same. Some of them have different toxicity profiles. Some of them impact ESR1 mutations differently than ESR1 wild type. So this is a field that is rapidly changing. Uh, and I suspect we'll see a number of those trials uh, in, you know, um, more of those studies report out in the early stage setting, though some of those are quite large studies and makes, may take some time to report.
Um, so for metastatic HER2 positive uh, breast cancer, as of now, do you still, like, after if they progress on HER2, do you still offer them TDM1 at some point? Mm. Like, yeah, for those patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer, and HER2 or trastuzumab directs TKIN has really moved up. We're also awaiting future trials to see whether it should be a frontline trial, you know, agent. And I suspect it will be, right? Like it's so active. It's also being evaluated in the residual disease setting for early stage patients comparing TDM1 versus trastuzumab directs TKIN. And so I still think there's a role for TDM1. I will tell you in how I sequence the drugs. I often, after trastuzumab directs TKIN, if I haven't given the HER2 climb regimen, you know, to catnib and Herceptin and CAPE, like at that point I would have given or I would have sequenced it otherwise. And then TDM1 is really my fourth line treatment now. Getting my workout in. <laughs> this is a similar question to Davies. So in the estrogen receptor positive metastatic setting, first line, I don't mind using the hormone therapy, but how long do we wait? Stable disease is what we're looking for, and sometimes we're going from one drug to another drug. It's like within four or five months, we're going through several drugs. Is there an oncotype assay hmm. um, trials being done mm. in these patients? Right. So... Uh, um, just so that we're all kind of on the same page. You know, Oncotype is an assay that we utilize in the operable setting that gives prognostic and predictive information of when we should be utilizing chemotherapy. So Oncotype has been evaluated uh, in the metastatic setting, was shown to be prognostic, but didn't achieve the level for clinical utility. Um, but I have several thoughts about from your question. So one we have seen that when patients receive hormonal therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is arguably the standard of care for our patients, when their tumors progress and they receive fulvestrin alone, the time that they're on that drug is two to three months. It's very short. And so in my practice, I've really moved away from giving single-agent fulvestrin and I've given, I often give it in combination with another drug, whether it's a PI3K inhibitor or whether it's Everolimus or maybe a CDK4-6 inhibitor, though we're waiting for the phase three results, which I think you guys had post-monarch open here, uh, of um, giving a bemocyclib after you have a tumor that progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So I think that, um, one... I don't make any changes based upon labs, right? I don't make any changes based upon markers. Uh, I base them all upon scans. Where I think the field may be going is what's the role of circulating tumor DNA? And I mentioned that there are different um, SIRDs that are being developed. There's, for instance, a study that's ongoing that's a frontline study where patients are on an AI CDK4-6 inhibitor, you develop an ESR1 mutation, don't have radiographic progression, and then you're randomized to continue what you're doing versus switching to the AstraZeneca oral CERD plus CDK4-6. So I think that that's the kind of study that may change how we're treating patients. You know, we saw data from this other study called PADA-1 along, you know, with giving fulvestrant. But this is, that was a phase, that was a smaller study. This is a larger study. 
And so I think that that's where the field is going is, all right, you do ctDNA, you identify this mutation, maybe you give a drug earlier to prevent the ultimate progression. positive, uh, HER2 negative, right? So I think the standard uh, is to give CDK46 inhibitor plus an AI. But you know, this has been debated, right? So how do you sequence those drugs? Do you always start with this? Or there are some patients who you feel comfortable giving an AI, mm -hmm. then later on yeah. change the treatment? Yes. So I'm going to say two things. So one, um, I start with an AI as frontline therapy at the time of metastasis unless a patient had a tumor that recurred on an AI or within, on their adjuvant AI or within 12 months of completion of their adjuvant AI. Otherwise, I would do full vestrin. So there was a thought-provoking study that was presented at ASCO um, from our Scandinavian colleagues that looked at giving an AI frontline and then switching to AI plus CDK4-6 or, um, or for Western plus CDK4-6 or starting AI plus CDK4-6 and then switching to full vestrin, right? So it was asking that sequencing question. And they didn't show a notable difference between those arms. And the point of their study, and this was a study that came out of um, the Netherlands, I think, and it was sponsored by the government, and their point was, is it cost effective for us to be doing this? And the argument that's been made for other countries, including the US, is, okay, well, the standard of care has already changed. You know, if you have an ESR1 mutation, you would be giving LSestrin that second line, or maybe you would be giving a PI3K inhibitor. But the argument was made, well, our standard of care has changed since these data were reported. I still think it's a thought-provoking study. And I think that there are patients who may respond to single-agent hormonal therapy. We have them in our practice. Uh, I have a patient that I inherited from a colleague who's been on tamoxifen alone for like 10 years in the metastatic setting. The real problem is that we don't have any predictive biomarkers for who's actually benefiting from the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And that's a problem in the early stage setting too. Right? If we're giving adjuvant abemacyclib, the only discrimination for who we should be giving is if you have high-risk disease. And so I tend to use the combo of hormonal therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor, but it's not unreasonable if you have a patient who's de novo or somebody who had hormonal therapy a long, long time ago, particularly in an elderly patient, of starting with hormonal therapy alone, but I tend to use the combo. All right. Well, thank you very much for attending this evening. Please thank our speaker, Dr. Kolinsky. Thank you.